Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Living room logic. I want to tell you a story about something that happened a little while ago. So with all the science communicating stuff I've been doing and all of that, uh, last, I think, spring, I was asked to give a lecture in science communication and how to do it because I apparently do it well or at least better than others or maybe it's because I'm young and can connect to them with that stuff. However, up to that point, I never actually sat down and thought about it. I just did what felt right, which I think a lot of us do with a lot of things. So I sat down and I sat with it and I felt it and I thought, hmm, what is it that I actually like? So I just kind of looked at who I thought does it well. And three names came to mind. First name is an obvious one. It's Sir David Attenborough. And I watched a lot of his stuff, but through a new lens of what is he actually doing that's so good? And I found what I was identifying with him was that he took all living things, plants, animals, from birds and lizards, and he turned them into brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and families. They had homes. They protected each other. They fought for each other. He placed humanity in all of these random creatures, even kind of aligning them with odd mating tactics, comparing that to things that we would do. What Sir David Attenborough does so well is he places humanity in everything. And since he's connecting humanity to everything, we see ourselves in it and we understand it. Does that mean everything he says is absolute factually true? Not necessarily. We can't get inside of the mind of each animal. But we can certainly understand it better. And that's really important. And that's probably more important than getting specific facts right, that we understand it and that we care about it. The next person was Carl Sagan. Now, Carl Sagan was a mentor for the likes of Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. They both had him as a professor in university. And he had a documentary that was released in the 70s, 80s or 90s, I can't remember, called Cosmos. And he had a way with words. He was a storyteller. He was a poet. He was a novelist. He wrote lovely, beautiful books. And when he was communicating about the universe, he didn't focus on the numbers of how big it was, how large the sun was, or how small the earth was. He described how it made him feel. It made him feel small in some ways. And then in other ways, it made him feel huge. And in these moments when he was describing this, he was describing how it felt to be human in those moments. To be a tiny fragment of the universe, but also so powerful, you could go out and discover it. 
again, that was a lot of storytelling. It was a lot of using humanity to communicate the science, which led to greater understanding even in the absence of precise facts. Everyone who listened to Carl Sagan and everyone who listens to Sir David Attenborough understand. They might not be able to spit out the facts like we're obsessed with today, but they certainly help you understand and they certainly help you care, which is arguably more important. The third name is a little more recent, uh, but Hank Green. And I like Hank Green. As a content creator, I think he's fantastic. I've been following him for a long time. But when I sat down to watch why I like Hank Green, he just is a master of his craft in different mediums. When he goes to communicate an idea, he'll go to each of his platforms on YouTube and his personal channels and then on his Crash Course channels. He'll go to his Twitter and he'll go to his TikTok, each of which have slightly different audiences and each channel is designed to communicate slightly differently. And he won't put up the same video on different channels. He knows how the audience receives information and adjusts it. He do, his TikToks are not tweets, and his tweets are certainly not TikToks, and what he puts on Crash Course serves a completely different purpose. Crash Course being a channel which kind of helps you study or helps people learn something for the first time obviously has to be designed with a much wider audience and a much wider knowledge base in mind. Take your TikTok, a younger audience, so he communicates differently. Twitter. People who don't even consume video, so you have to consume, you have to go to people who read. And it's those reasons that make him brilliant, because he's so good at changing the way he goes about a communication. And I put all of those into a lecture anyway, and I talked about it, and really what I was just trying to get the students to do is to reflect on what they enjoy and why they do it, and then try to reproduce it and identify things in different creators that they enjoy that they could use. And hopefully, once you have that self-reflection, be able to bring that forward to your own thing. Except recently, I got nominated for an award. The inaugural Irish Podcast Awards nominated me as a rising star in Irish podcasting. That's weird. And that feels weird. I'm just a guy who wanted to start a podcast with his mate and talk about science. The first season is just me and Aiden getting really drunk and talking about things we're passionate about. And from that, I've worked with the Department of Health in COVID. I've given a TEDx talk. We've hit number one on the Irish Science Podcast charts. And now this just feels a bit weird. So I, I was wrestling with the weirdness and the imposter syndrome. And I think it brought me back to that. The award nomination is Rising Star. And the only way I can accept it is that I am nowhere near good enough to be a star or of some kind or anything like that. But I'm definitely trying and I'm always reflecting and trying to get better. So I'll at least accept the rising aspect of the nomination. And I'm super appreciative of that. To get the nomination, we had to submit some clips of the podcast and all of that. And that's what I'm going to include at the end of this little spiel that I'm giving. I'm going to talk about the introductory monologue I gave for Alan's Forgotten Pandemic. Great interview with Dr. Fiona Gallagher. And then I think one from my women's health 
episode and another from, I believe, Addiction. And those are the three clips which helped get me the nomination. So I just thought I would share that with you. In other news as well, uh, the next season of Living Room Logic is being released in the first Monday of September. Get ready for that. We have connected with research centers in the country to interview their researchers, which has been lovely because it helps us get some money into the podcast to keep pushing it forwards. And I've gotten loads of other really weird interviews with psychoanalysts, experts on age development, experts on things like psychosis and cheese, which of course is class, and also a mathematician at NASA, which will be really cool. Really looking forward to sharing all of those and really looking forward to seeing how it all goes forward. Yeah, I think there's also a public choice award for Living Room Logic, and it be they're going to release the top 20, which means... It's going to be hella tough to get in that top 20, but we'll give it a go. And I'd really appreciate it if you would just click the link that I'll be sharing on my socials, on my Instagram and TikTok for Living Room Logic and Scientist Ireland, etc. And if you'd vote for it, I'd really appreciate it. But anyway, here are the clips. Hope it's nice to uh, see a Living Room Logic notification come up again. And here's to many more in the future. Hope you enjoy the clips. What's the crack? This week, I have an interesting story to share with you about how Ireland historically has handled pandemics. Let me walk you through my thinking. And I interviewed a historian, Dr. Fiona Gallagher, about Ireland's historical responses to pandemics. See, over the last year and a bit, we've seen the world effectively shut down in the face of an invisible lung-eating menace. Like us all, I had too much time on my hands only to be filled with what I had in my room. I should count my blessings that I have all of the information collected by mankind, digitized, often in the palm of my hands. I can learn about velociraptors, which in reality were disappointingly the same size as turkeys, but also see catastrophe across the globe, live-streamed onto my Twitter feed. I think people in my generation likely suffer from an empathetic overload sourced in this visualization of global issues somehow both feeling the pain of others worlds apart and still detached from those we speak to online, or whatever. At least we are more informed, I guess. But what if we couldn't? What if we couldn't see New York digging mass graves in 2020, hospitals being overrun, a global vaccine effort, or see the count of 3.5 million real lives which have been lost as I record this? I think we take for granted just how informed we are. Understanding how a disease happens, even, is an incredibly recent achievement. Bacteria causing disease was first identified in 1860, with viruses being understood 30 years later. Think about that. No doctors knew this. The quality of medicine to treat disease up to this point was pretty poor. And when you put these together, how do you think people in the past managed pandemics? You'd never see the reality of a disease until it's too late. The doctors didn't understand exactly what was happening, so they had to be taken at their word. The word of someone who isn't always too helpful anyway. It's easy to say today that you would know better, but the people of the times likely never stood a chance. Like you thinking velociraptors as six-foot intelligent dinosaurs because of Jurassic Park, rather than the spiky possum-brained turkeys they really were. So I went online and looked for examples of pandemics reaching Ireland and how we reacted. The best example was a cholera pandemic which reached the island in 1832. 
There were seven cholera pandemics between 1817 and 1975. It's no simple disease. Cholera itself is a bacteria, meaning that in 1832, we simply did not understand it. Now we know it enters the body through unhygienic water or food, infects the small intestine, causing significant dehydration by diarrhea. Today, it's simply treated by providing clean water and a diorolite to replace the electrolytes lost. But think, if a community's well had cholera, how would you treat the disease? Doctors of the time certainly weren't walking around with bottles of Evian and a few sachets of blackcurrant diorolite. They didn't have antibiotics either, on account that it was yet to be invented. So cholera would infect somebody and take their life in a matter of days if they couldn't rehydrate. This dehydrated state that cholera left people in gained cholera the name the Blue Death. The next question was, how the hell does a pandemic happen in the 19th century? I can understand the rapid spread of COVID around the globe. After all, it's only seven hours from Shannon, Ireland to New York. The answer is armies and boats specifically in the pools of water at the base of a ship's hull. Back to positive emotions, which are much more important for the discussion around any addictive disorder of the brain, right? Yeah. Positive emotions include two main things, and we'll, we'll be going back and forth on these a lot, all right, for the next few minutes, okay? Mm -hmm. The first one is that feeling of anticipation and, ex and excitation by the promise of survival, okay? So this could be the anticipation because you're working, you're hunting, and you're happy, you have a positive emotion in pursuit of this goal. Okay? Yeah. And this it's like an encouraging, it's a motivating positive emotion, right? To reach the goal. And then the second one is the positive relief or security at the removal of a threat. Okay? So mm. this could be, this is the... Oh, I'm so glad we actually caught that thing we hunted. And now you're happy and you feel secure because you got it. And now you can feed your whole thing yeah. and you feel a huge sense of relief and a huge sense of pride and happiness. So those are the two positive emotions. It's the positive that pushes you to get there. And it's the happiness you feel when you're there. After you're there, yeah, once you've attained it. Yeah, so these things make sense, right, in an evolutionary context. But today... It doesn't. Today, we feel happy when we get a test result, okay? And we yeah. feel scared when we get a bad test result. And you could make the argument that, oh, this is maybe influencing your place in society. But that isn't what these emotions were built for. You get what I'm saying? These emotions were yeah. built for, I will starve if I do not hunt this boar. Yeah. And you get motivated to hunt the boar, mm -hmm. and then you get driven to look past your fear and then you feel elated when you find it and feed your family mm -hmm. that's what the emotions were built for need and survival and how many times would they those feelings happen probably not a lot or they there's a baseline amount when you're running around chasing mammoths um, exactly but this wasn't a daily occurrence like this. yeah that they were feeling yeah. things like that yeah you, you couldn't repeat it a lot right and like like we we're saying this like change in the perspective of what a positive and negative emotion is is completely different because in the past positive emotion was survival your it was improving your survival of the fittest that's what positive was mm -hmm. but today it's happiness 
isn't it? It's the, it's joy. It's the, we're all want to live a happy, long life, which is utterly unattainable. You know, it's yeah. like the, that's the whole thing about the pursuit of happiness. You can't, it's not real. You're not, you, you, you're looking for a life of stability in reality. And the thing is, is that we get a lot of these situations, right? Where these systems in your brain, which were built to keep pushing you forward, mm. they can be manipulated. And the problem is, is because these core emotions, they're deeper than you are. They drive you. You don't drive them. Yeah. They, you are your consciousness and your thoughts and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But you know what is below that? That's the deeper, deepest part. This is the part that's in every mammal on earth. You consciously don't go, it's been a while since I drank water. I probably need to drink water. No, you get thirsty and then you go, I'm going to go get water. And then you get your water and you're like, ah, you had my drink. Same thing with food. You don't say, God, it's been a while since I ate. You go, what the hell is that noise coming from my stomach? What are these pangs of pain coming from my gut? Mm. I am hungry. And, and what do you do? You do what it tells you. You get up, you get yourself food. Whether that's ordering fast food or going cooking, it's the same thing. Or being mean to your partner because you're hangry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's it. It's, it's deeper. It controls you. It's yeah. not you. You don't control it. You cannot control it. It controls you. And it's the same way with this, right? So the problem is when you get into talking about uh, an addiction disorder is that what any of these addiction disorders, uh, whether they're physically manipulating these evolutionary established systems in the brain yeah, yeah. or non-directly reacting to it so if it's a very easy motivation with a very quick reward all it's doing is basically taking advantage of a very archaic very core system in the body yeah and altering it and this system was there to keep you alive so it is deep and it's very powerful exactly so i want you to so i'll put it this way okay consider this your brain rewards you for positives Right. And when you complete a goal, mm -hmm, it gives mm -hmm. you a reward and that drives you to repeat work to achieve the goal. Do it again. Get the reward. Right. And the reward and motivation to get the reward are tightly interlinked. The behaviors and substances of abuse falsify this increase in survival that you're meant to get from this, mm -hmm. resulting in the in the reward signal. And then like before, your neural circuitry tells you, God, do that again. We got the reward. We'll motivate you. Go do that again. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that even if you are cognitively aware that this, let's say, drug or this behavior was not actually helping you, that doesn't matter. This is deeper than you are. You could consciously be aware of it, but it's deeper than you. It controls you. You could say, God, this is bad. This isn't actually helping me at all. Your reward system doesn't care. Yeah. Your reward system is deeper. It says, just like you need food, you need to keep doing this thing that gives you reward and I'm going to motivate you to do it. And this like paradoxical thing of this isn't good for me, but I can't stop doing it is really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a feedback loop. And this feedback loop, this circle is what results in a disorder, right? The brain will drive you to get that positive emotion because the the brain thinks this is going to save me. Yay. Yeah. And it doesn't. And the thing is, is this can get to a point where it actually overtakes Things like eating and things like sleeping mm -hmm. because it's much more repetitive. There's no time between it. There's no limit. You know, wow. it, it offers the most reward 
for the least motivation, the least work, most reward. And that's ideal. That's perfect. Yeah. Okay. That's what this part of the brain really, really wants. Okay. So in effect, the substance of abuse or the behavior becomes the primary driving factor of survival for the body and brain. Okay, and it hijacks this positive emotion circuitry, which drives you to complete tasks which may not be related to survival, but the brain perceives it as you need to do this to survive. This is what you need. Yeah. And if you don't get the reward, that's when you go into things like withdrawal. You're not frequently getting the reward. And when I was going through neuroscience, I kept seeing things about sex differences and differences between men and women. And I was like, huh, you know, as far as I can tell throughout the history of science, there have been men and women. And I was like, it's kind of strange (laughs) that we're so perplexed by differences. And I went into the history of it a bit. And there's absolutely horror stories in the history of it. There are... Because in the history of medicine, it was very much so they would test it in men. And then Mm. if it's good enough for men, it works for women. They were like, yeah, that's fine. But this this was um, absolute disasters. There were studies of breast cancer that would give a treatment for breast cancer and only do those clinical trials in men. And we're talking like thousands of men. Even though it's, yeah, and this is breast cancer. This is something that's done, that's 95 plus percent in women. There was morning sickness pills, the thalidomide incidents in the 60s, where it was a morning sickness pill that was put on the market after testing in men. And then it was given to pregnant women and it proved to cause developmental defects in the baby. And obviously, they didn't realize until nine months later, until it was taken off the market. Why? Because this bloody tablet wasn't tested in women, right? And the thing that really, really shocked me about this, this this happened in like the 60s. And there's a ton of stories that I could go into, but let's not about this. It wasn't until the 1990s that the FDA in the States actually said, right, to get a drug on the market, you have to test it in women. It wasn't until the 1990s, right? And since 2010, the majority is something like 85% of the drugs that had been taken off the market retrospectively mm. had been taken off the market for having more severe side effects in women. Okay. And this circles back to the fact that they weren't tested in women in the first place and they got on the market um and this is still continuing to this day it wasn't until 2015 that preclinical studies so studies in animals and in cells that you had to really test women and that if you're applying for any grants like with research ireland or science foundation ireland you have to at least explain how you're going to address the issue of sex and gender in your study because it is showing to be more diverse. But that's 2015, Abe. Oh, my It's goodness. 2015. So the thing that kind of blows my mind is that we, it's, for me, I'm like, yeah, every human who's ever come to life has had a mother and has had a father, father. of some degree. They have had grandparents there, you know. And it's like, how has this been missed? How, how bloody obvious is it that there are individual differences between males and females? This is the end of the podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed your time. If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned, why don't you give us some of your money? Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.